Massive wildfires in Canada blanketed the East Coast in a haze of smoke for several days. And then it went beyond the East Coast. It went to the South. It went to the Midwest. As the climate crisis intensifies, hazardous conditions are set to become more and more common in every part of the world. But for the capitalists, the only thing that matters really is that their employees, the workers, keep coming into the job regardless of the severe health dangers. Without workers, after all, without them working, the capitalists make zero profits. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us again for our regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. I'm your host, Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. We appreciate all the support and encourage you to become a patron today if you're not yet. If you enjoy listening to the show or rely on the show or both, show your support by becoming a patron. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. That's rdwolf.com. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you very much, Brian. I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much. Well, it's not unusual, Richard, for there to be massive wildfires in the western part of the United States or the western part of Canada, but it takes something of a a perfect storm, so to speak, for there to be massive wildfires in eastern Canada, in Nova Scotia and elsewhere. So it was unusual, but it was everywhere. I mean, I'm in New York City right now. You live in New York City. I mean, Public school events were closed. Baseball games were shut down. Soccer matches canceled. The air was very, very, very unhealthy. Of course, there was no stay-at-home order. I want to talk about the impact of the environment on the working class, on society as a whole, the sort of refusal of the capitalist class and individual capitalists to take any responsibility for a crisis created by modern industry, modern society. And I also want to talk about a Marxist view to some of these questions. Of course, Frederick Engels, who co-authored the Communist Manifesto with Karl Marx when he was at a very young age, 27, about 10 or 15 years after that, wrote several books, one of which was only published after he died, called The Dialectics of Nature. Another of his books was called Anti-During, or that's how we know it. And one of the chapters there was entitled The Part Played by Labor in the Transition from Ape to Man. That's a short little pamphlet. People can see it. It's an unfinished work, and it was only published you know, well after Engels died. But in that, 
he made the point that human beings as social beings do not, quote, rule over nature like a conqueror over a foreign people, like someone standing outside nature, but that we with flesh, blood, and brain belong to nature and exist in its midst, and that all of our mastery of it consists in the fact that we have the advantage over all other creatures of being able to learn its laws and apply them correctly. Thus, for each presumed victory over nature, humanity then pays a cost. So there's a lot to talk about here, but I want to talk about the fires, the cause of the fires, the impact on society. But I also do want to visit Marxism and Engels, of course, being Marx's principal partner during Marx's lifetime has written, you know, basically what might be considered rudimentary texts, but they're texts that nonetheless provide a framework for a historical materialist attitude towards the interplay, the interconnectedness between society, economy, and nature itself. Well, I think I agree, but I think we can start with the Marxian understandings because they are immediately applicable to the fires in uh, the eastern part of Canada and the the devastation that the smoke from those fires has caused. I live in Manhattan, as you correctly pointed out, and I can tell you that everybody here that I encounter in New York City has very upsetting stories to tell. Their allergies are much worse. Their asthma has been aggravated. They're worried about the long and intermediate effect on their lungs. I noticed many people who have pets have described the difficulty of the dog, the difficulty of the cat who has had to breathe this stuff in and wasn't prepared, the children who can't go out in the playground and who are frightened by their parents' sudden unwillingness to take them anywhere and to return to the masks they thought they had put aside in terms of, of COVID. The impacts are enormous. And many activities were curtailed. I can describe to you many restaurants that were closed. They could not have people inside. That's still a leftover from the COVID. And they can't have people outside because of the smoke and all of the the debris that comes out of the air. And so they laid off people who normally work in the restaurant because they didn't need as many or they didn't need and on and on and on. And here's why this is economically important. As Marx pointed out, capitalism experiences a certain kind of growth because it fetishizes profit. Profit is the bottom line. Profit is what is calculated by every capitalist when that capitalist decides what to produce, what not to produce, where to invest, where not to invest. In other words, the economy responds to and is based on profit calculation, profit maximization. But the joke is, and it's a very bad joke on the human race, that when the capitalists calculate what the profits are that they face, they only count the costs that they have to pay for. So if they need an input, let's take an example of a chair manufacturer. The chair manufacturer has to have wood to go into the chairs. So wood is something that's a cost. And when they calculate profit, they count the cost of the wood or of the glue or of the hammers or of the nail. But what the effects are of cutting down the forest 
that had those trees in it, what that will do to the air, what that will do to the water runoff, what that will do to the natural ways of cleaning the air. The capitalist is not responsible for all of that. So the capitalist doesn't have to pay for any of it. So the capitalist doesn't count any of it. So he ends up, our capitalist, investing in share production because it's profitable. But it's only profitable because the revenues less the costs did not count all of the secondary and other results of what he's doing. This is not an accurate count. It's why the claim by people who like capitalism that it's efficient is nonsense. Efficiency means you've looked at all the pluses, the benefits of something, you've looked at all the costs of something, and if the benefits exceed the costs, well, then you go ahead and do it. But the capitalist never does that. The capitalist never counts the costs that he's either unaware of or is not responsible for. But we all live with the results. The people who developed the forests in Canada that burnt or the land that burnt, they didn't count the costs to the city of New York of the smoke. Now, I understand they didn't understand it, but that doesn't change the fact that when we look at the total result of whatever was done or not done in Canada, it's not an efficient solution. And that's what goes on most of the time. The factory that opens in, in Manhattan and spews smoke into the air that hurts the lungs of people who have to now go to the doctor and the hospital, the capitalist who built that factory doesn't have to pay the cost of the hospitalization of the people whose asthma got worsened, so he doesn't count it. So in his calculation, it's profitable, so he put the factory there. The rest of us pay the price. The system as a whole suffers an inefficient, dangerous outcome because it allows economic decisions to be made by people who care only about the profit. This is lunacy. This is an irrational way of organizing a society. The real intelligent way, the rational way, would be to say that you don't, when you build anything, when you decide how to use land or any other resource, you don't just look at the private profit of the entrepreneur. That's not the only outcome of what you're doing or deciding not to do. There are a thousand other things going on. Traffic is going to be changed. Housing patterns are going to be changed. Air quality is going to be changed. A thousand other things. Those count too because they all shape our lives. We're not all shaped by profit. So why should profit be the foundation? It's a fundamental flaw of capitalism, and we experience it every day if we take the time to think it through. And then periodically you have a disaster like these fires in Canada, and the lesson, which you might not have noticed in your everyday life, should now become clear to you that this is an economic system that is constantly imposing this kind of irrational inefficiency on all of us. One of the things that's clearly observable, Richard, is that the environment has sustained great damage as a consequence of the unplanned production during the era of the Industrial Revolution and beyond, including the current era, the era of capitalism, the era when capitalism 
came into as the dominant economic system, as a mode of production in Europe, and then now has spread globally so that as Marx and Engels did predict in the Communist Manifesto, the image of the bourgeoisie that was created, say, when they were writing in 1848, became the image of that was mirrored by and mimicked by the rest of the world. The rest of the world followed suit, as they, in fact, predicted. And so the impact of industry, the impact of the harvesting of natural resources, including oil and gas and that which is necessary for modern industry, has taken place in a completely unplanned way. Each capitalist employs labor for their own profit. Each capitalist obtains raw materials for their productive process. They obtain the the machinery. They obtain whatever they need for their enterprise. So you have hundreds of thousands, millions of independent enterprises, and then a smaller number of mega enterprises, the, the monopolies, they're all doing it, and they're only their only criteria for success, and it's measured very specifically and very directly, very practically, is how much profit they made, say, in the last quarter, in the last three months of any given year. Because if their profits are going down, then investment will flow out of that enterprise into another enterprise where profits are higher, because the point of investment is to maximize profit. So it doesn't matter whether the particular capitalist uh, reads all of the books. Maybe they read the books about by Engels or the books by Marxist economists who are worried about ecology and about the sustainability of the environment. It doesn't matter what they read. It doesn't matter what they believe. It doesn't matter if they go to church or the synagogue or the mosque. It doesn't, none of that matters if they don't come back and make a maximum profit in that quarter, in that three months capital will flow outside of their enterprise. So it's not really about them as people. It's about the system. And here we have a system where we can see now observably that we've entered a new, perhaps a new geological era. There's debate about it. The International Union of Geological Sciences hasn't officially approved of the term the Anthropocene, meaning a geological period where human activity is actually impacting the climate and the nature of the planet itself in an existential way. There's still a debate about it, but nonetheless, it's an observable pattern. And yet, even though we as humans can observe it, there seems to be no political capacity whatsoever within the existing capitalist system and the political system that goes with it to do anything to make this a rational sort of outcome, meaning we can see what the problem is. We can see where it's going. You don't need to be, you know, very intelligent even. You don't even need to be that well-informed. You could just go outside in New York City and breathe the air to know that there's something different happening. And yet no political direction, political will in the upcoming 2024 elections, neither the Democrats or Republicans will have a single significant platform to offer to mitigate and yet it's all solvable. Anyway, let's just talk about that. Yeah, I think it's your point is well taken. I find it frustrating, sometimes even depressing, to see these issues presented as starkly as they increasingly are. And the response of the system, which is controlled by profit and profit-maximizing 
institutions. We've allowed these corporations to become so big and rich that they have more than enough money to buy the political system. We can see that all around us. They buy the politicians. They control the media upon which the politicians depend, like they depend on them for the donations that they use to pay the media, who are capitalists too. It is so obvious that their response will be the response of a person who doesn't want the conversation to continue. So they simply ignore it. They tell us a story that the the smoke, which is really hurting New York City, is a natural phenomenon. You know, it's just fire or a forest or some burning. They'll make it a, an exceptional thing. They'll make it unusual. They did really the same thing for COVID-19. You know, less than 100 years ago, we had a virus that killed even more people as a percentage of our population than the COVID did. We knew exactly all about it. It was historically documented. We understood how it spread. We learned exactly nothing. We didn't prepare for the next one. We didn't have any science developed out of the old one for the new one. It's sort of like how this system deals with the recession. The financial press these days is full of estimates. Will we have a recession? When exactly will it hit? How bad will it be? How long will it last? All of these questions asked as if the last hundred years haven't seen recessions in the American capitalism every four to seven years like clockwork. You make it sound each time like it's a unique event. Why? Because then you can ascribe it to some unique cause instead of seeing it as a systemic quality that keeps recurring. This is not an accidental misunderstanding. This is a way of dealing with these problems that carefully avoids linking them to any system and especially not to the capitalist system. But we know that the oceans are now filling with plastic. Plastic is something dependent on petroleum. We have allowed petroleum companies to produce, and the plastic, you see, it's so convenient. It's so efficient. Oh, yeah, but that's because you didn't count what is done to the ocean by all that plastic garbage, what is done to our food supply, what is done to the temperature. All these things, which were many of them known, get pushed aside, swept under the rug, because we're in a crazed economic system focused on profit, which produces such wealth in the hands of the profiteers that they can keep control of the media, control of the government. So we are all lost, unable to know or think through, or as you rightly put it, organize the mass of people to stop this craziness. But I would add a point. I don't want people to walk away from listening to me feeling pessimistic, because I'm not. This is a system that is now in an advanced stage of decline and self-destruction. You know, there's a conflict going on right now between Mexico and the United States. It has to do with white corn. The Mexicans have banned the import of white corn from the United States. Why? Because it's GMO. It's genetically modified. They don't trust it. They don't think it's safe. They worry about what was done to that corn that hasn't been counted and what damage will come to the Mexicans 
because they use white corn for tortillas and other immediately consumed food product. And the United States is angry and wants the Mexicans to accept it. But the Mexicans don't. And that's a shift that's very important. It means other parts of the world are beginning to say, no, we don't have to go along, not only with the United States, but they know what drives the United States. The people aren't worried. By the way, white corn is 3% of what we export to Mexico. The vast majority is fine because it's fed to animals. Of course, we don't know what that means, but we another piece of ignorance we set aside. But more and more of the world is getting stronger and stronger by virtue of their own agreements amongst each other in saying no to the crazy consequences of capitalism that the capitalists don't want to think about. The consumers in Mexico do. And you know, if they get in trouble with the United States, they can go elsewhere to buy corn. And they will. And this is happening in a million little cases every day. And it shows you that there is a reaction all over the world. The real question is, when will the American people begin to feel, and I mean feel in the literal sense, coughing all day here in New York, is a way of feeling that this is a system that isn't working. And you can make one excuse after another, but eventually you decide we need a different system. We're not going to be fighting endlessly the negative outcomes of this one. Richard, as we start to move towards the end here, I want to talk specifically about what's happening to workers in the face of these environmental crises. During the middle of the height of COVID, everyone was talking about essential workers, the frontline workers, the people who brought groceries and food to your house or your apartment, the people who you know, continued to take care of the elderly by going to their homes, the people who couldn't stay indoors, the people who could not work remotely. And we said, these are the essential workers, even around where I live, you know, the banners were put up outside of nursing homes. Heroes work here. Suddenly the working class was heroic. And then the COVID crisis sort of wound down and like essential workers were just like, mm, not a big deal, no longer very heroic, back to business as usual, back to people just barely surviving. Now, upcoming in July, at the end of July, the UPS workers, the Teamsters, are facing the end of their contract. And by all indications, there may be the first nationwide strike of this magnitude in a very long time. And the bosses at UPS and the workers are, the Teamsters are very far apart. There was a major UPS strike in the, in the late 1990s. Here we are, 2023, it could happen again. And, you know, again, frontline workers, UPS drivers and people who are loading those trucks, working really under terrible conditions. Here's from how it appeared to UPS workers and other, quote, frontline workers, these essential workers last week in New York. Here's the headline, ABC News. Nowhere to escape. Frontline workers contend with wildfire smoke. Face repeat of pandemic divide. It felt very apocalyptic, one worker said. As wildfire smoke bathed New York City in fumes, love the language, on Wednesday afternoon, UPS driver Matt Leichinger said he suffered a wave of nausea 
in the back of his truck with hardly anything he could do about it. Quote, there's nowhere you can escape to, Leishenzer told the ABC News, unless you literally stop working and go inside. But if you do that, it prolongs your day. He was working, Richard, as the UPS workers routinely work and as postal workers routinely work, a 12-hour shift in Brooklyn that involved more than 100 stops. Anyway, once the pandemic was gone, these heroic workers, these essential workers, no longer heroic. And, you know, I think it's all the more important to repeat some of this because if UPS workers, if the Teamsters who make UPS run go on strike at the end of July, everyone needs to be there supporting this union struggle. Yeah, let me let me amplify two other examples. The first one is the ILWU, the people who work on the docks on the West Coast of the United States. They're involved with a struggle there with their employers. It is, to quote Marx again, showing us that the history of our time, like the history in the past, is the history of class struggle. Slave against master, serf against feudal lord, employee against employer. And this struggle is now being impacted all the time by these global conditions. Those dock workers had to work overtime during the pandemic because of the goods that were shipped in that had to be able to go and to be distributed to the American people, whether there was a pandemic or not. Here's another example. 1,700 workers in Connecticut went on strike a couple of weeks ago. Why? These are people who work in specialized homes for the developmentally challenged people in our midst. You know, you can measure the decency of a society in terms of how it deals with people like that. These 1,700 workers went on strike. Why? Because the Democratic governor of Connecticut offered them, in effect, a 2.5% wage increase. This at a time of 5% inflation. In any other country, this would be called an austerity program because you're offering to diminish the standard of living of some of the lowest paid workers in your society. And this is at a time when Connecticut, which ranks number one or two in wealth of any state in the United States, has a big budget surplus among the highest in its history. This is grotesque capitalist behavior here, even in an area where profit isn't the issue, but this kind of profit mentality infects everybody. That's part of why we didn't prepare for these fires in Canada, why the United States is not involved with the Canadians in a massive program of dealing with these fires. I mean, the incompetence of the state and the dominant purchasing power of the state by private enterprise is at the root of all of these problems. And unless we deal with that, they're going to continue and the cost to us is going to mount. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work, the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. That's rdwolff.com. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back tomorrow. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. 
If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. 